don't forget to hit record. Hey, if you're just tuning in, I forgot to hit record and I'm talking about the logical priority of salvation and union with Christ. Um, so, uh, but uh, the, the important thing here, um, Becky, is that I would say that justification or propitiation, which is a part of the justifying work of, of God in Jesus, uh, a part of the justifying work of God in Jesus, um, the assuaging or the satisfying of God's wrath. That's what propitiation means. It's the satisfaction of God's wrath. And uh, a, a faithful understanding of propitiation in the New Testament is that Christ has satisfied the wrath of God and he, he has become the substitute for God's people. That I would say that is the forensic or the legal foundation of our relationship with God, um, meaning that if union with Christ is kind of the home of salvation, the, the foundation of that home is justification. Uh, and uh, it's not a home though. Justification is not a home. Uh, it's not fellowship with God, it, it, not in and of itself, but it, it makes fellowship with God possible because now we can be declared righteous and having been declared righteous, uh, we can enjoy fellowship with God. So I don't know if that's helpful, Becky, but I would say that uh, that we cannot receive, we receive the declaration of, and I want to be really clear about this. You can only receive the declaration of right. God doesn't give you a declaration of righteousness because you're righteous. And we don't get the declaration of righteous merely because Christ is righteous. We get the declaration of righteous because we are in the righteous one. We don't just like Christ has died as the righteous one. But because of that, it's not as if everyone in the world, merely by existing in the same world, is declared righteous. No, the righteous declaration of God is the righteous declaration of God he uniquely gives to Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We receive that by grace through faith, not in justification, not in righteousness, but by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And having placed our faith in Jesus Christ and entered into him, we are now called righteous because he is righteous. Does that make sense? Okay. So it's not like there's this pool of righteousness that's somewhere outside of Jesus and Christ has secured this really, really big well of it. And then when you become a Christian, he apportions a part of that righteousness to your account. That's not how it works. It's that Christ is righteous. His life, death, ministry, resurrection and exaltation is the vindication of that righteousness. It's the banner over him. And we get that righteous standing because we are in the righteous one. There is no righteousness outside of Christ, the righteous one. Which uh, I don't, my Catholic theology is not as precise as it ought to be, but I I do believe that that is a significant departure between our view of righteousness and grace and what Christ accomplishes and um, how, the, how the Catholics would view righteousness. There would be, in fact, sort of a pool of righteousness that we then get to, we get credited essentially to our account and we pull, pull from that pool and then add into that pool kind of thing. Um, so that is, a, that is a distinct difference between us and our Catholic brothers and sisters. 
What else on Union with Christ? Great start. Thank you, Becky. Kyle, you did such a great job of teaching that nobody has any questions. Mm, I think that's a pretty gracious read on the scenario. I think we're just a little too far removed from that lecture. <laughs> I think that there's, well, I think that's it. And I also think that I know the first several times I learned about sat in lectures on union with Christ and was thinking about all of these terms in sort of a philosophical and logical way is really quite overwhelming to me because you know up until this point you're just like oh, i'm saved i don't know like that's that's the gospel that and then all of a sudden someone's trying to parse out for you every single aspect of it and you're mm -hmm. like yeah this doesn't resonate with my experience of coming to know the lord but it is worthwhile and it's so interesting and helpful to kind of parse out these things um i think your point about a lot of times I tune out when people get into like the logical priority of salvation. Cause at the end of the day, I'm like, well, are we saved? Okay, great. Um, but I think you make a really good point about um, not being able to enter into a relationship with God until we are righteous. And so that kind of determines and controls some of the logical priority of how these things happen. But it's also okay if you're overwhelmed and you feel like, Aren't we just saved? Yeah. Well, we are saved, which is a mercy. How do you kind of differentiate between like how you're talking about being like united with Christ versus like being united with Jesus? You know, because it's like, like thinking about in the new coming, like we're not going to be all one like body on the new earth, like being, you know, mm -hmm. completely united with Jesus Christ, our Lord. Like we're, but I feel like, I feel like that would just be like an easy way to kind of like get mixed up when we're talking about like, like, um, I just, yeah, I just feel like that would be an easy way to like accidentally misuse who you're talking about and how you're talking about it and then have like unintentional implications. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So what's the nature of our union? And that's an important question for now and for later. The nature of the union is that it's a mystical union. That's what the theologians have called it. That's the operative term. And the mystical union is... Uh, uh, the, or that word is used basically because it is very hard to quantify and to qualify uh, the specific contours of how we exist in Christ Jesus. I mean, if you look at Paul's language in Ephesians, I mean, this is a great example. I had a little bit of this in the lecture, but it's really, it's really profound when you consider what Paul says in Ephesians 1 and 2. You think particularly... Oh, let me get over here. I want to read it. Um, when he says, you know, gosh, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, you know, carrying out the desires of the body, you know, by grace you have been saved uh, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So like Paul's writing to a church in Ephesus, real people who exist on earth, people like you and me. They're not in heaven, like spatially. Okay, and he's telling them, uh, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God has made us alive together with Christ. That part of it, by grace, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing; uh, it's a gift of works. But what he says, by grace, after by grace you've been saved, he says, and raised us up with him, 
and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So what does this mean for the church in Ephesus? They're in Ephesus. And Paul is telling them, if you're in Christ, you have been raised with him and you are seated with him in the heavenly places. And what it's important what's important for us to realize is that for the imagination of the new testament as hard as it is for us to imagine this reality um paul is communicating something that is radical and that is a little bit mind-bending which is that i don't know where you're at you're in east dallas right now or you're in richardson um you are simultaneously as a christian wherever you are and in christ jesus in the heavenly places um, and this is that mystical union, meaning that this is what Paul gets at in Philippians when he talks about um, uh, essentially dual citizenship. We are citizens here on earth, and yet at the same time, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Um, and that to exist in Christ Jesus now means that we're existing always quorum Deo before the very face of God in his very presence and that we are at the right hand of God, meaning that you can really say that, uh, you know, and I think I said this in the lecture, but like, as near as I am to myself, Christ is nearer still. Hmm. Um, as uh, oftentimes, whenever I'm with a, a brother or a sister who's struggling or who's in a time of uh, doubt or, or skepticism or unbelief, the prayer that I pray and the encouragement that I give to them is, do you see how close I am to you right now? And sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll grab their hands if I'll say, like, hey, can I hold your hands? And so I'll hold their hands and I'll say, do you see how close I am to you right now? Christ is nearer still. He's, he's even closer. And uh, he's inviting us to, to live into that intimacy and that nearness. And it's incredibly difficult to do because of our fallen estate, because of the imaginative gap that exists. But that, see, that's the, that's the reason why this is really worth exploring um, over the long haul, because the, the Christian life is one that is by definition lived in Christ Jesus. Uh, and that the real joy and wonder and surprise of the Christian life comes from trying to learn in starts and in stops what it means to live very ordinary mundane moments as someone who is in Christ Jesus. So it is a mystical union. And I'll tell you, you won't get there through a Forge program lecture. It will probably take a long, long season of just fervent prayer and even then, it's like what Paul says, we're just getting vapor trails of it. It's a mm. mirror dimly, you know? So, mystical union. That's how we participate. But no, we're not bodily in Jesus Christ, though we are in the body of Christ, uh, which is the composite of his people. And yet Jesus Christ, as you know, because you're good, you have good Christology now, um, uh, you're, uh, Jesus Christ is the son of God, uh, you know, one person with two natures. He exists physically, uh, independently of you and I, and we are not going to be absorbed into his physical material body. But the the iconography and the sim the symbols of revelation in the new heavens and the new earth are really at pains to point out that we will be marked by Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. So what today seems to us to be a mystical union 
actually when we get to the new heavens and the new earth is somehow visibly represented on us, both with a new name and with some sort of, I mean, what it will be is uncertain um, given the imagery and revelation, but it, it is some kind of visible manifestation of what today is a mystical union. And not only that, but we actually will live in the light of God. That's the whole that's the whole universe of the new heavens and the new earth is no longer, you won't be walking around heaven going, I wonder where the presence of God is. Um, yeah. The presence of God will be all encompassing and yet it will not obliterate the distinctiveness of the world around it. That's, that's the great splendor of heaven is that Christ's glory begins to uh, shine into all that's fair and good and we see it more clearly. So here's a question, a follow-up to that. Thinking about the mystical union, I want to say that the mystical union is effected by the spirit. But then I want to be able to parse out sort of union with Christ and the indwelling of the spirit as being overlapping, but not one and the same. How, how do you see those, like, how, how do those things interact in your mind? Yeah, well, the presence of Christ in us is a presence that's manifested by the Spirit. So, like, uh, right. our intimacy with Christ is not because the physical um, embodied Lord Jesus Christ physically draws near to us. Right. Um, it's that the Spirit... Um, brings us into the the into God's presence through the Son of God. It brings us into the presence of the Father through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Uh, and that, um, so when you pray, I mean, just uh, this is a big word, um, phenomenology. Okay, phenom, and then ology, phenomenology. And that's what we're about to do. You're about to get a little phenomenology of prayer here. Phenomenology is just the study of experience. Okay, and this is important. We very rarely think about the experience of prayer. I mean, everybody tells you to pray. And everybody's very intent in churches to tell you that you should pray and maybe even give you some methods of prayer. But very rarely has anybody ever sat you down and talked to you about the actual experience of prayer. Right? About like what prayer actually can be. And yet prayer, every time that you pray, you're engaging in the full scope of Trinitarian relations, like every bit of it. Um, the only reason that your words are intelligible to Jesus is that the spirit makes your words intelligible to Jesus. And the only reason that your words go to God, the father, um, uh, the fount of salvation and the source of divine action uh, is that Jesus Christ brings them to him. And so when you're praying, sometimes what I will often do to myself when I uh, do uh, say to myself, when I begin to pray is I will begin to pray by saying something like spirit of God, make my words intelligible to Jesus. 
bring my words to Jesus. I don't know that I'm praying the right things. I don't know that I'm saying the right stuff. I may not even be making the right request. I'm sure I'm failing in some capacity. Just bring them to Jesus. Hear my heart. You know, Paul says the spirit of God searches the depths of God and the depths of man, right? Spirit will pray for us groaning in our weakness, making our words intelligible when we have nothing to say. So spirit of God, bring my words, the words, even the words I don't even know to speak to the Lord. Um, and then I'll address the Lord and say, Lord Jesus, please bring these words to the Father so that he might hear um, my prayers. And when you're beginning to pray like that, and I'm getting to your question, Caroline, just in a long way. Mm-hmm. But uh, when you're thinking about like, okay, what is the Spirit's role in our union with Christ? Well, the Spirit is the, the one who, uh, by grace through faith, actualizes and affects our union with Christ. And he seals our union with Christ, uh, meaning that we are brought into Jesus by the work of the Spirit. We are kept in Jesus by the work of the Spirit. uh, And we are able to cultivate communion with God through Jesus by the work of the Spirit. So the Spirit is the one that is bringing us into the work of the Son, Um, The Spirit is the one that's keeping us in the Son and uh, applying all of the salvific benefits or the saving benefits of God and Jesus to us. And he's the one who's cultivating our communion. And this is something I didn't get to talk about in the lecture. And if I could, I just want to say this because I found it to be helpful. Is this okay, Caroline? I'm not off your question. There's a difference between union with Christ and communion with God. And if you're somebody who's a note taker, write this down. Okay, so if you're taking notes tonight, this is something, not because, the, nothing I'm about to say to you is unique to me. I just want to be very clear about that. Um, but I have found this to be pastorally helpful, and maybe it will be of help to you or help to someone else that you're ministering to. Um, union with Christ and communion with God are not the same thing. And much doubt and confusion has resulted from people confusing these two realities. Union with, with, with Christ is an unbreakable, unshakable source of our fellowship with God. Once you're pulled into uh, uh, union with Christ Jesus, nothing can disrupt that. Paul's clear, Romans 8, what can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? And then he lists off all these things. The list isn't meant to be exhaustive. It's just meant to be uh, a picture of nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, okay? So union with Christ is the um, unbreakable bond that believers are brought into by grace through faith in which all of the saving benefits of God are. Everything necessary for salvation and fellowship with God is in Christ Jesus. And by grace through faith, we are brought into Christ Jesus. And once having been brought in, nothing can disrupt that, nothing can break that, nothing can shake that. Not even our own will, stubbornness, rejection, and defiance. But our communion with God, our communion with God is not the source of those saving benefits, our communion with God is how we enjoy those benefits. It is the growth and cultivation of rich enjoyment of all the saving benefits of God in Jesus. And your communion with God, and you need to hear me loud and clear, it can both be disrupted and it can be deepened. Your communion with God, not your union with Christ, your union with Christ cannot be deepened, nor can it be disrupted. That's unbreakable. It's unshakable. It's never changing. If you don't read your Bible for the next year and you are in Christ Jesus, guess what? That relationship will not be deepened, nor will it be disrupted. 
because it's not contingent on your faithfulness. It is contingent on the faithfulness of Christ, and it will not be broke no matter how hard you desire to break it. But your communion with God will be deepened or disrupted by your obedience or by your disobedience. And oftentimes when I encounter believers who are struggling with doubting their faith, doubting the authenticity of their faith, or in a dry season, they will associate their enjoyment of the benefits of God in Jesus, communion with God, with do I actually belong to God? Am I actually his? Union with Christ is the source of salvation and all of the good benefits, blessings, promises of God. All the good things about the Christian life are here. They're in Jesus. They're available and accessible to us. And we can deepen or disrupt our enjoyment of these blessings and benefits with obedience and with disobedience. So if you don't read your Bible and you don't pray and you indulge in sin and that becomes a pattern, your communion with God will be disrupted. Your enjoyment of him will be disrupted. The joy you take in fellowshipping with his people will be disrupted. Your ability to hear his voice will be disrupted. Your hope for heaven will be disrupted. Your contentment will be disrupted. It will be. Um, but the good news to that is that you can actually deepen your fellowship with God. You can actually deepen your communion with God. And how do you do that? Well, through the ways that God has told you to do it. Obedience, worship, prayer, fasting, fellowship with his people, listening to his word, reading his word, studying his word, sharing the gospel. These things actually deepen our uh, enjoyment of all of these saving benefits. So union with Christ and communion with God. Union with Christ cannot be broken no matter how hard you, Satan, hell, Sin, the world, Babylon, or Babylon's forces, try to break it. Nothing can break your union with God in Christ Jesus. It's unbreakable, it's unshakable, and it's being held by Jesus, and he's a really good protector of his people. Your communion with God can be deepened, and it can be disrupted. Yeah, I think, I think there's also, it's really helpful to remember that both of those things are affected or mediated through the spirit. And so when we talk, this is moving ahead to lectures, but when we talk about the work of the spirit and the dwelling, the indwelling of the spirit, both of those things are effected, meaning brought to results, like brought to fruition by the spirit. And so we can say then that we can never chase the spirit out of us yeah. because in the same way that our union with Christ is unbreakable, it's the indwelling of the spirit that affects that affects yeah. that brings that about and that cannot change but our felt experience of the indwelling of the spirit which is closely related or could be synonymous perhaps with filling of the spirit um, that is very similar it's connected to it's parallel it overlaps with communion with god communion with christ because really that's the spirit's hope and filling and indwelling us and that felt experience is to bring us into communion with Christ, the spirit of Christ. And so those things are kind of parallel um, with the indwelling of the spirit yeah. and the work of the spirit. Anything else on union? 
All right. Let's kick it over to interpretation and illumination. I have to go to the bathroom, so I'll be back. Um, okay, I got uh, one great question on interpretation. So let me answer that one while you guys are thinking about what other questions you might have about illumination and interpretation. But also, if you have any questions about the assignment, this would be a great time for us to talk through that as well. So feel free to, um, yeah, to holler with any of that. Okay, so this question is, um, in short, how do you think through who you read with. So I, as I was reiterating many times, uh, I argue that we need to read for ourselves, but not by ourselves. Well, then how do we decide who are the people with whom we read? And that's a really good question. And that was something that I thought about, um, or was later felt like there just wasn't enough time, unfortunately, to kind of walk through that. Um, so I think that when we think about reading with others, there is, um, you know, one of the, the sort of, what's the word, like lowest hanging fruits is the people that are right around us. So whatever community you're walking in, I think that that's a really important level of reading the Bible with them and saying, hey, I'm reading this and, it, you know, I feel like this is how I, you know, see the meaning in the text. Like, does that make sense to you? Or, or what do you think about that? And that's important for a couple of reasons. One, um, it's really important to find people with whom you can dialogue back and forth. And the problem with books is that you can't really go back and forth, you know, not super well. Um, so I think that's really important. But then secondly, reading with the people that are immediately around us and that know us, they, that helps to sift through um, our own heart because they know our tendencies towards sin and our tendencies and, and how we view the world. And so they can be a really good check on where I might be reading my own situation or my own preferences into the text. So that's kind of one piece of it. But when we're talking about like looking at bigger resources, I think that that's a, a it is kind of tricky to figure out like who do you read with and who do you not? Because if you, on the one hand, if I gave you like a perfect checklist and I said, Hey, if this person believes these 10 things, then you can trust in their interpretation of the Bible. That's going to leave me with a really narrow group of people. And then I'm going to only be hearing from people within kind of this narrow group. So that, that doesn't feel good. That's not, I'm not going to get challenged. I'm not going to have different muscles strengthened. Now, on the other hand, if I say, just go out there and read with whoever, you are going to run into some interpretations of the Bible um, and approaches that where Kyle and I might be quick to call that person a brother or sister, we would say we really disagree with how they approach the text. They have different presuppositions and how they approach it, or they just come to some really different conclusions. Um, a lot of that is when you get um, taking a very specific kind of approach and you're reading that approach into the text. Um, and you're not allowing yourself to ask the control question of what did the original author intend by this text? I never want to say that the intent of the original author, human author controls or is the only control on the meaning. But I do think that when we start to to lose sight of the original author or the original human author, that can be when we start to really spiral out and we just start reading our own ideas into the text. Um, at least that's kind of what is going on in the academy. So I'm not just saying that like from personal experience, I'm saying 
that is when I look at the books about the Bible um, and about Bible interpretation, that is what you see. Um, there's stuff called like womanist interpretations and liberation interpretations and ecological interpretations. And you just, some of them can have some helpful perspectives and then, but by and large, uh, it's just reading what you want to into the text a lot of times. So how do you find like, you know, the healthy kind of medium? I would start with people within our own tradition. So first of all, orthodoxy is incredibly important. Um, and then starting to look at what are the distinctives of Eastside and Mosaic? How do I find people within those traditions? So specifically for us, Reformed, Baptist, um, or is it going to be kind of our most narrow tradition? And how do you find other people that kind of fit in that category? But I think that as you, the more comfortable you get reading people who do share most of your theological beliefs and assumptions, then I think it's important to read some people outside of that because then you'll be able to sort of pick out the wheat and leave aside the chaff. So I read a lot of Catholics. Um, you would think my Catholic theology would be better from that standpoint, but I read a lot of Catholics because I'm reading about Mary and there's a lot that I disagree with. And then there's a lot that I am like surprisingly agreeing with or challenged by. Um, and so I guess it's some of it is saying, are you comfortable sifting things out? Do you think you are, um, have you been, do you have like a good enough ear on sort of your own tradition to be able to discern what you agree with and don't agree with and people kind of outside of that? Um, but yeah, I, in terms of like, how do you even find that stuff out? Um, I mean, that I ask people, like if I'm looking for books, on a certain topic. I ask other people like that I respect and trust and like, who do you recommend? And then you kind of get to remember, oh, I've heard that person before. Um, and you, I look up authors. If I'm looking at a book about something, I'm gonna figure out like what seminary are they teaching at or or where, what kind of church are they a pastor at or what do they, what's their history? And that'll give me some ideas of uh, what kind of assumptions they might make about the text. So um, that's not a perfect, grid and I don't know that that's super like specific on a methodology but unfortunately it's just not super easy to like give you a nice little checklist on these people are safe to read and these people aren't and truthfully I don't want to create people like that I want to create discerning critical thinking theologians that are able to take the wheat and leave the chaff so what do you think Kyle is that fair I didn't hear the original question the question was, how do you, so I said uh, in the lectures that we need to read for ourselves, but not by ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so the question was, how do you then decide who to read with? Because yeah. that, that is true. I did not get a chance to talk to really address that in the lectures. So that was kind of my take on that. Yep. Thoughts, concerns? Nope. I like how you answered it. Read a okay. lot, read yeah. a lot of books, talk about them with a lot of people. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, I think one thing too, talking about it with a lot of people, uh, like developing a, a, a small community, whether it's sort of mentor type relationships where you respect and trust and you feel like you can run ideas by them, or whether it's peer relationships where you can read something. So say you pick up an outside author that you don't know, or, or maybe has some differing beliefs and you read them and you're like, wow, I really like that. But then you're, you kind of want to 
it's always good to then like run it by another person and say, well, what do you think about this? Like, does this make sense to you or take it to someone in your kind of community of trust? And that's a good way too, just to make sure you're not kind of veering off down a, a track. Kyle and I do that a lot, like bounce ideas back and forth. What do you think about this? Like, well, what about that? Um, yeah, I have different people. I kind of run different things by. Yeah, and that's really helpful for biblical interpretation because if you find yourself on an island interpreting something that you feel like, wow, I don't really know if this is how to interpret this, then it'd be really good to read it with some other people and be like, does this seem crazy? Um, yeah. That's why interpretation happens best in a community, just like theology. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, this does kind of also bring up the question of like tradition of the church. And I do think that, um, you know, I want to be really deferential to the historical, the traditional interpretations of the church. If it, if the church has interpreted certain aspects of scripture a certain way for 2000 years, I think we need to be really cautious if we're going to challenge that. But I do think that being a woman in particular, I probably am more ready to challenge sometimes very, very carefully and in all humility, simply because there are many ancient church fathers that I deeply respect on so many topics and utterly abhor their views on women. And so that's an uncomfortable conundrum, um, but it, it makes me cautious, but also um, cautious to just take something because it's been interpreted that way for 2000 years. And therefore I feel like it's, I want to be cautious to be like, Oh, well, it's untouchable, but I also want to be cautious about trying to, you know, assert any kind of different interpretation as well. How do you all, Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Adam. Oh, sorry. Um, I was going to jump on and ask, um, how, how do you respond to someone that says like you like read or think too like overthink theology and stuff and just say that like praying and like the spirit is enough to just like give you answers? Mm. That's a good question. Uh, mostly I just ignore those people and don't talk to them about theology anymore. Is that a helpful? <laughs> is that helpful? No. Kyle says, no, don't do that. <laughs> Um, I think, you know, at a high level, what I would say is if God is who he says that he is, if he is truly the creator and sustainer of the universe, the universe, not even just our world, but the millions and billions, or I don't even know how many stars there are out there, everything, if he holds all of this together, if he created the most intimate processes of molecules and atoms and all of that. And he knows our hearts. He knows the hairs on our head. It seems to me that he is a really deep God capable of profound truth and beauty and goodness, literally at every single level of the universe that I can conceive. So why, why can I not think deeply about that God? I would also say he encourages us. He tells us to think his thoughts after him. He draws us in and, and um, he talks about these things. I mean, he's, he has spoken to us. He has made a way for us to communicate with him, to understand him. So 
why would I not want to understand him as much as I possibly can? So that's kind of how I would think about, you know, people who say, oh, you're overthinking this. Like, and I do think that, um, I should probably pause and say, I do think it is possible to overthink things. Um, at the end of the day, all we do need is Christ, period, and full stop. And sometimes I can't process things theologically. All I can do is sort of lay myself at the feet of Christ and say, hold me fast because I've got nothing. And so I I do want to be cautious. I think we can like get ourselves into little circles where it's like, I'm stuck on this idea about something. And the idea is really disconnected from our kind of everyday Christian life. And, and that is maybe a, can be a bit of, of a danger, um, but I think that he's invited us to think well and he has ordered things well. And it's part of the cultural mandate. It's part of working and keeping the garden. We're working and keeping every level of his creation. So I, I I hesitate to challenge anyone who's going to say all you need is prayer in the spirit or Christ or whatever, because there is a, a a simple truth to that. But I think we're invited into too much more. What would you add, Kyle? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, have, a, I have a hard time uh, with anybody that would be like, yeah, if you love me, you won't get to know me. You know? <laughs> so, uh, you know, nobody has ever said that I have thought too much about my daughter, and nor do I have to be admonished to think more about her because I love her. I, uh, the same holds true, more true for God. Um, and yet God is bigger than my daughter, despite what she presently thinks. So, um, yeah, I mean, gosh, I'm really glad that Paul didn't listen to his, uh, to the guy who told him, Hey man, why are you thinking so deep? Can't you just pray for the church in Rome? He was like, yeah, I can pray for him. I also think God has some things to say to them. (laughs) And I'm going to think a lot about them and write them in a very specific way because I want them to know who God is. So, yeah, I mean, what Caroline said. Josh, do you want to jump in with your question? Yeah, I was just going to ask, how do you guys balance, like, reading the Bible and reading books about the Bible? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I feel like when I was in seminary, or I guess I still am, so I don't know, a lot of times people wanted to really like encourage me, don't, you know, make sure you carve out your sort of quiet time or devotional time outside of all of that studying and stuff. But I think that's a really wrong way of looking at studying theology and studying the Bible whether, you know, like kind of all the outside stuff, I find that study can be profoundly devotional for me when I bring it to the Lord first. I ask the Lord to, um, to allow like what I am reading to read me as well. I'm bringing sort of my whole self to study and not just keeping it at sort of a content and informational intellectual, you know, kind of level. Um, I find that reading commentaries can be an extremely worshipful experience. And sometimes they can be very informational and dry depending, you know, on the moment and, and um, 
So I don't see there being like a huge divide in those things to me. Um, I, I think the divide is only in how I approach the texts, but I also want to be very quick to say that we put the Bible on a level that is not the same as other works about the Bible. And so I do want, I do find sometimes that if I have been doing too much schoolwork or teacher prep, and I haven't been in the text enough, um, I do find that it kind of, it affects me. Um, and I, I do sometimes, I do have to take a step back and just um, make sure I'm coming to the scriptures first to see and know God. And so sometimes for me, um, that, and you know, it's like, I'm really having to be diligent to say, okay, I'm going to first thing in the morning, I'm going to pray through the Psalms. I'm going to read through something that's totally unrelated to all of the stuff I'm prepping. Um, and just cause I kind of need to do that to approach God. But, um, in general, I find it's kind of a healthy mix and I don't have to put a lot of like, uh, you know, stringent restrictions or requirements on it to, to make it all sort of be fuel for the fire, if that makes sense. What about you, Kyle? Yeah, the goal is to meditate on God's word and to be shaped accordingly. If that means that in a given season, you're doing more reading or in a given season, you're doing more study or more meditation or more memorization. Um, what, what I think a lot of believers feel paralyzed by is like, am I supposed to be reading the Bible, studying the Bible, memorizing the Bible, meditating on like all these different ways of engaging with scripture every single day? And the answer is no. Um, that's not what, 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 that's not like a law that the Lord has given you. Um, but he has invited you to deepen your communion with him through regularly hearing from his word. Now, the method of that could change. It could change day to day. It could change week to week. The format could be different. Um, like in, in, in the recent past, I've been listening to God's word a lot more than I have been reading it on a daily basis. Am I being negligent because I'm not reading the Bible, but I'm listening to the Bible? So is that like a worse form of intake? Well, I don't think so. I think that I'm sitting in God's word and I'm absorbing it and I am listening to it. It's shaping me. The Bible oftentimes, like, you know, when we talk about interpretation and illumination, you think about reading and studying the Bible, it's kind of two sides of the same coin. I often talk about like when we're reading the Bible, the formation that's happening is like running water over rocks. You can't see how it's shaping the rocks, but it's shaping the rocks. This is why the church fathers used to light a candle when they were reading scripture, because as they watch the candle burn, they may not feel like, oh, wow, this is doing anything to me. But as they watch the candle burn down over days and weeks and months, they could say, so too am I being shaped in accordance with the word of God. Um, it was a visual reminder of what is often an intangible or unfelt thing in real time, which is how the Bible is forming us as we read it. So Bible reading is like running water over rocks, but Bible study is like digging a well. And I'm not, I'm, uh, it's a lot more, the formation is a lot more concentrated and focused. If somebody says all of my Bible intake is through rigorous inductive Bible study, then I'm like, great, like go for it. That's not, that, that's not me. Um, the bulk of my Bible intake is not me out with a pen and a pad going through doing historical work on the text. The bulk of my Bible reading is me reading a passage and then pausing to pray and then moving to the next passage until my coffee gets interrupted. 
that's basically it. Like that's basically how I read the Bible. And then if I, if something catches my heart, it's like, okay, maybe I'll meditate on that a little bit longer today. Maybe write it down on something. And then it's like, if I really feel like the Lord's doing something there, kind of pricking my heart about it, or if I feel like it's an area of growth for me, then maybe I'll commit it to memory. And gosh, I might read something on Monday and meditate on, meditate on it on Tuesday, Wednesday, work to memorize it on Thursday and Friday and not do any more reading, not make any more progress, so to speak, for the rest of the week. Have I been negligent? I don't, I don't think I have. So I think how do you balance reading the Bible and reading other books? I would say I'm not really worried about that balance. I think that the focus should not be on I got to have X amount of Bible intake for every hour of Netflix logged or hour of Kindle read. I think the goal should be a real question of who has the loudest voice in my ear and my heart. And if the answer is anything but God's word, then I would increase my Bible intake. I think another thing um, that you can do alongside with increasing your Bible intake is um, putting it as primary. So there's a lot of study on the primacy effect and the idea of like what we look at first and how that impacts sort of the rest of our day or our moment or our interaction, blah, 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 et cetera. And so I think that it's with good reason that the church has historically said, get up and read your Bible first thing in the morning. Um, so I think that's one practice that we are trying to develop in our household is reading scripture before looking at our phones even, um, just to, as a small reminder of this is what controls meaning in my life not the rest of the stuff that will come in throughout the rest of the day, but this, and maybe at, you know, six in the morning, or I only have a couple of minutes or I'm groggy, but it's still just this small act of running water over rocks and saying, this is, this is what is most important. And then it's the first thing that's in my mind. And it kind of has the opportunity to shape everything else that I see instead of um, everything else shaping me. And that's less of a quantity and more of a quality sort of conversation. So that's been really helpful practice for me. All right. Should we move to work of the spirit? I just got one other question about interpretation and then yes, I, I think we can answer it quickly. Do you feel that reading secular authors has influenced how you interpret the Bible? I'm wondering if theologians who read broadly are better at studying the Bible than theologians who only study theology. And I don't know if we have the same answer about this, but I know we both do read very broadly. Um, I think the answer to that is yes. I think that reading broadly, or I should say, I think reading broadly in general can only be, or is usually only of help because it helps you understand people better. And um, I think that when you understand people better, you understand yourself better, you understand um, how you also just understand how stories work and texts work and communication works because you've read a whole bunch of it. And so that impact that impacts then how you come to the text and understand the text. That's kind of a, a super um, simplified answer. But I think I personally advocate a strong yes to that question. Um, I, I do feel that at certain times, people who have gotten sort of too insulated or insular in their theological thinking um, you just kind of get into a really narrow way of seeing the world and way of seeing the text. And it can be, um, 
it can, I think that it can kind of narrow your way of seeing things. But I do think that it's possible to read broadly within theology. And that's another way to, to make sure that you're kind of hearing a lot of different perspectives and voices. So anything to add? On the foundation of scripture and in the community of other Christians. I mean, uh, you can do, there is a lot. The, the, road, the road is very broad and uh, the playground is big if you will be willing to stand firmly in scripture and in the community of saints. Um, so read promiscuously as long as you are uh, soaking in scripture. Yeah. Okay, work of the spirit. Okay, here, oh, go ahead. Jump Sorry. in. Go. Can we uh, get into the cessationism and continuationism of our churches since you promised it <laughs> did i promise it was promise the right word dang it maybe maybe i use strong wording so i'll hold you to it that's fair yeah that's a fair holding me to it um we can let's do this though let's take a few other questions about work of the spirit first and then we can circle back to it so if you have questions that do not relate to cessationism and continuationism, let's kind of address some of those first. Um, I got one here, um, and I think it's a good, it's a good question for us to think about. Um, so says that my charismatic Christian friends view the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a second baptismal act. And that I spoke about the baptism of the Holy Spirit fairly definitively as something that happens simultaneously with salvation. So could I please speak to that difference a bit and any passages that, that sort of influence that conclusion? Yeah, so that is a great question. Um, the One of the main key passages in short and that kind of separates people's interpretation or view of this is uh, Acts 8. So in Acts 8, one would think I have my Bible right here. I don't know. I'm sure it's around here. Um, in Acts 8, the apostles, or who is it? Peter, somebody comes to Samaria and they preach the gospel. People become, it appears that people become saved, but then um, they do not receive the spirit. And, oh, that's right. It's not the apostles first until the apostles come and lay hands and then they receive the Holy Spirit. So that is Acts 8, 14 through like 20. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they were now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. They sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of Lord Jesus, of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So that's a little bit confusing, and that is a, a big part of what makes people think that they're, or kind of gives credence to this idea that there's a second baptism of the Spirit. Now, the problem is that charismatics view that second baptism of the Spirit largely as having to do with an empowering for ministry, or there's kind of a, an association of power or something that comes along with that. Not 100% across the board, um, but there's, in short, a different emphasis on the theological baptism of the spirit. So I would say that baptism of the spirit is when the, the spirit comes to dwell within our hearts. And that comes with 
all of the things that we've been talking about, not only the power for ministry. It can come with power for ministry, but it is not limited to that. It, it, is, it is all of the benefit of salvation. So I do see that as being theoretically, experientially simultaneous, but logically separate. So there's a doctrine of separability that um, even those of us who don't really see a second baptism of the spirit do believe and hold to the idea that there is a logical sort of separability of um, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but that in felt experience or is kind of like parsing out justification and adoption, et cetera. There is, there's an issue of sort of ordering the events of, of what happens, but it's not, it's not something that we wait on. We are not justified and then we have to wait a period of time and then we are adopted. Um, so we are not saved and then we wait a period of time and we are indwelt by the spirit. Um, so that would be where there is some difference between us and charismatics. And what else? Oh, yeah. So then you have to address the issue of Acts 8, which is a somewhat complex passage to uh, to interpret. But I think in short, without taking up too much time, where I would go is um, it was a pretty big deal for the gospel to be to go out of Judea. So this is. This is in the, the spreading out of the gospel. And Jesus told them, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But Judea was really the sort of uh, geographical boundary of God's people. Samaria is a weird deal where they're kind of like half, not breeds, but like half halfway God's people. I always think about... Um, Harry Potter and like half breed. So there's like this, there is a sense in which it is not yet sort of the ends of the earth and, and the full on pagans, but it's also not God's people. And so I really would interpret along with others that see this as being um, a transition, a major transition that's marked by a unique outpouring of the spirit. And that we could kind of talk up some of those differences to that more than anything. Um, there's kind of more to it, but that's sort of a high level view for what the time we have. Kyle, what do you want to amend? No, that, and you don't want to build a prescription about baptism out of a descriptive passage and a hinge yes. point in redemptive history. The passage that you see in Acts has more to do about how the good news of the gospel traveled than it did about how the Holy Spirit fell upon believers. And it's not a passage to build a, a view of second baptism on. Second baptism is not a, it's, a, it's not a helpful view of the reception of the holy spirit uh, not all charismatics hold to a second baptism i'm a charismatic i don't hold to a second baptism um but some do hold to a, a second baptism and i would say that that's an unhelpful uh, it's it's not it's not consistent scripturally so yeah it's a it's a failure in biblical interpretation going back to the yeah uh the session before this it takes a descriptive passage about a very specific moment in redemptive history and prescribes it against what is the clear witness of scripture in Matthew 28 and in Romans 6 and throughout pretty much a complete omission of it in the Pauline epistles and his many instructions on baptism. Uh, so you're good to go. You don't need a second baptism for the Holy Spirit. Yeah. That actually brings up a good point too about the spirit. <clears throat> we have a tendency to 
uh, label charismatic those who are really what we're talking about is more like Pentecostal or further down the spectrum. And, um, and yet technically the term charismatic would apply to anyone who holds a continuationist point of view. So that's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, all of us then would be, well, I don't want to put anything on you, but our churches would be charismatic in that sense, charisma being gift. And therefore we believe in the gifts. Um, but there is sort of a, a there's a spectrum and there are kind of a large group of denominations that um, hold to some different beliefs. And we have a tendency to just generally say, oh, the charismatics, but actually we're all charismatic. Or again, we, Eastside Mosaic, we are all charismatic. Okay, any other questions or are we about to tackle cessationism and continuationism? Really? I hardly think we'll tackle it in 20 minutes, just- You don't think so? Candidly, um, but we can talk about it. I feel like that splitting of hairs. Well, what did you promise them in your letter? I mostly just said that, here's the deal. I was in the middle of lecturing and first of all, running out of time because I'm always running out of time. And I got to the section when I was like, I felt like people needed to hear a little bit about continuationism and cessationism, but then how do you wrap that up in like five minutes? You know, it's kind of, it's like a lot. So then I said, well, we'll talk about it in the Q and A, which is really just like punting. So I didn't have to figure out how to, like what, how much to say. But part of it was that also while in that very moment, as I was recording the lecture, I thought to myself, you and I have not discussed where Eastside Mosaic might differ. Mm. And I got hesitant because I didn't want to, I just, I don't know, didn't want to presume. Okay. Do we differ? I don't really know. I don't know. I've never talked about it with Adam. Well. So I'm not quite sure. But we can definitely talk about continuationism and cessationism. And I'm sure it will be profitable for those who are hearing. Harley, do you have specific kind of questions or do you just want us to talk about it? Love to hear just your opinion. Um, I think I was like trying to go through it myself and then I got most hung up, I think on healing, but then tons, I really appreciated your um, response on prophecy. And so, great job. Um, but yeah, I think when I was trying to explain healing myself I was like wait I don't know what my definition is and then I also don't understand if it which one it would fall under but again y'all just free for all go for it falls in there um okay I think this is what I said Kyle and then you why don't, and then you can kind of jump in um we were talking about the gifts of the spirit and how they're listed out in a few different places um and then how people will pull out specifically apostles or not apostles actually that's part of the but they'll pull out um prophecy tongues and healing as sign gifts and then they kind of ask the question in short like well we don't seem to see those things happening right now very much so what gives like what do we do with that and there's been two predominant ways of approaching that issue, which is one, that those gifts no longer are necessary. They are no longer part of sort of the Christian experience and that that 
they were no longer necessary, most people would say uh, about the close of the canon. So when the scripture became sort of the scripture that we know it to be today, those gifts ceased. And so that's what we would call cessationism. Um, and then others would say they would look at the New Testament and the Bible and they would say, well, I, I don't see any indication that they cease. It seems pretty clear that, I mean, we're, we're instructed about what to do with tongues and prophecy. And this is the canon. So it doesn't seem obvious to me that those things would have ceased. They're also listed in the same lists. Um, with all the other gifts of the spirit that aren't ceasing. So how, how then are we, you know, parsing these things out in that sense? And so they would say, no, it, they continue. All the gifts of the, of the spirit continue. That would be continuationism. Now, the, the interpretive issues, a lot of it goes back to two primary concerns, apostleship and prophecy, because, um, whether or not you see prophecy as continuing largely depends on how you define prophecy. Um, and so, but then again, like that's kind of a chicken and egg situation, right? So if you think that the gifts of the spirit continue, you're likely to define prophecy in one way. If you think that they cease, you're likely to define prophecy in another way, but kind of the interpretive hop points, if you will, um, are the fact that it appears that prophecy in the old Testament was canon. It was in the inspired word of God. And so if prophecy uh, continues today, then then wouldn't we have to take prophets and put them at the same level of the scripture? But we're not going to do that. We all seem to know that revelation, special revelation has ended. Um, It has closed and we want to be very, very careful with elevating anything to that level. So then what do we say? Do we say that prophecy is different in the New Testament? That is, in fact, what some people say. Um, so the issue, so with prophecy, the, the hot button is, is it the same as the old, in the Old Testament and the New Testament? Um, no. And you you say no. Well, it's, it, 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 it's prophecy in the New Testament is a gift. Prof, prophecy in the Old Testament, prophets in the Old Testament were an office. The, the office of prophet has been absolved. There are no more prophets, if by prophets we mean those who speak with the inspired, inerrant authority of God. Uh, those pro- those That did end in the apostolic age. The, the apostles were the last, of the, pro- the, the last of the prophetic office. There is no more prophetic office, which means the gifting of the New Testament that's expressed is a gifting. It's not an office. Um, and uh, and that should be really clear. Now you can you'll hear the word prophets used in the New Testament, talking about those who still may exist. Prophets should judge the prophecy of other prophets. But it should be very clear to us, based off of Paul's instructions in First Corinthians fourteen, that he conceives of this gift being exercised in a radically different way. Keep in mind, Paul is a Jew among Jews. He is under no confusion about the role of the prophet among the people of God no confusion at all he knows the prophets he knows exactly what a prophet is and what a prophet isn't and so when he's giving instruction about the interpretation and the accuracy of prophecies and how to vet prophecies and how they should be done he is giving instructing instruction that is demonstrating very clearly he conceives of prophecy in the new testament to be drastically different 
than the prophetic office of the Old Testament, which should de-escalate prophecy as a really spooky thing uh, in the New Testament because we don't have to be worried about it coming from a prophet. It's not coming from a prophet. There are no more prophets who get to bind your conscience. Those prophets are dead. The word of the Lord speaks authoritatively inspired and inerrant. There are there can be people who exercise prophetic gifting, by which we mean they are able to speak with a unique and timely sense of discernment in a way that exhorts a believer or believers to Christ Jesus through a timely word or what uh, First Corinthians calls a word of knowledge or a word of revelation. So, but no, the Old and New Testament are not talking about prophecy in the same way. The restrictions on accurate and inaccurate prophecies don't hold for the New Testament because they're not measured in the same way. That's that's my take. I do think it might be important to uh, just note that while I applaud your <laughs> conviction and certainty, I don't know that everybody, even everybody within our own like communities, sure. would posit it with quite that same <laughs> surety yeah. ultimately i think i come to the same place as you yeah. would i use the word certainty or clear clear very clearly uh yeah. multiple times in my exposition of that uh yeah no no i, I would not i don't i i'm not sure i share your conviction on the clarity of that, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I do think I end in the same place. Um, I do think it's probably important to note. I also don't think that Adam shares that same certainty. I think he is more hesitant. I think again, I think Adam and I both come to the same place, but are um, just are more cautious mm -hmm. um, in that. So, yeah. I think when we think about how is like, keep in mind when, when Paul is like exhorting the church in Corinth on how to prophesy, he's exhorting non-apostles. Yes. Yes. But in the old Testament, it wasn't only, uh, there were people who prophesied that were not only prophets that, that held not the office of prophet. Yeah. So there were people who prophesied who were not, who didn't hold the prophetic office. Yeah, like Saul. R right, but but so, but the the kings of Israel function as like hybrids of the prophet, priest, and king roles. That's a part. That's kind of. I, I'd be curious if I could find somebody in the Old Testament who I couldn't make a good case for being within the prophetic spectrum, at least in that office, either as a figurehead for Israel or as a an, an actual prophet in the Old Testament. I'm trying to think. Is somebody that's not a king or who wasn't a priest or who wasn't a prophet um there could, I think, there could be i don't know that i can think off the top of my head uh but i i do think that there are cases where there's a filling of the spirit and a prophetic utterance but mm -hmm. then you i mean you have to and then also there's prophets who do hold the office of prophet but uh their prophecies are bad now we don't have their prophecies recorded in canon because they weren't. Right. So it's kind of, that like is an interesting mm -hmm. sort of conundrum there. So I do, for what it's worth, definitely agree that there are no longer the office of prophet currently existing. Right. That is that's an easy that's an easy yes. And I think that um, 
that and the, the office of the apostle. Mm-hmm. One thing that's really interesting, all of these things are tied very closely with the close of the canon because we are given um, the gifts of the apostles and the prophets. The apostles were, I do agree with cer- great certainty that the apostles were the last um, people holding the office of prophet. Right. And I also think that one of the ways that we can look to that office ceasing is because we can, it doesn't, it has not ceased in the sense that we have it here. Their office, the, the function of their office continues. It just continues in a written form, uh, yeah, which is a bit sort of uh, shrunken down. But yeah, I, don't uh, know I, I don't know that I had thought about it like that, but I think you're right. That's a really good way of saying it that like the ministry of the prophetic office does continue beyond the the confines of the apostolic age. It just doesn't continue as a new ministry other than the the illumination of the spirit unveiling new things from those words delivered. I think that's a really good way of thinking about, about it that helps to kind of bridge to maybe some of the confusion around what is the ongoing ministry of the apostolic witness to us and how does that pertain to the the contemporary ministry of prophecy because when it does when it comes to the sign gifts the new testament is giving regular instruction to non-apostles about the exercise of even when you get to james james is instructing uh regarding healing he's giving very specific instructions about healing prayer um like he's saying like hey if somebody's sick among you call the pastors tell them to anoint them with oil and lay hands on the sick person and pray that they would be healed and james is giving very like technical information about the practice of healing prayer uh, or which is typically considered to be one of the sign gifts paul is giving very specific instruction about tongues and the interpretation of tongues and prophetic utterances it seems strange to me which is often argued that for cessationists to say, well, the apostolic age, when the, when the apostolic age ended, there was no more practice of the gifts. It's like, well, then why are the apostles spending so much time instructing non-apostles and in how to use these gifts? I, th- I mean, then that is a very good argument for why we ought to see them continuing in some form or fashion. And I think that, uh, I think one of my, one thing I find interesting is that when you look at the narrative of Acts, like I was just talking about in Acts 8, every time the word of God goes to a, a place where there was darkness previously, the spirit is all about the work of giving life. The spirit is the life giver. And we see the spirit bringing light and life into dark places. That is uh, his one of his missions, if you will. And so we see that also testified to in Acts, where there is sort of a new frontier to be crossed. The Spirit shows up with a lot of the sign gifts, because the whole reason we call them sign gifts is that they are a sign of the truth and the power and um, the, the presence of God. So I think that experientially, we notice in the church today that the sign gifts tend to be very prevalent in places where the word is going out into dark places. And so I would never want to minimize that. Um, And I also want to, yeah, just notice sort of a pattern there, that there is um, a pattern of, of the spirit going into dark places and showing up with a different kind of power there. 
Now, does that mean that we shouldn't look for that kind of power here? I think no, but I, I mean, I think, no, I, I do think we ought to look for the power of the spirit here. I think that we have a long way to go in terms of recovering, um, the experience of the Holy spirit, the filling of the Holy spirit, the communion of the Holy spirit. What does it truly mean to walk in the spirit? I think that we could do a lot more work there. Um, and we could think a lot about the gifts of the spirit. I just, one, I just have, I just want to be like thoughtful and cautious about looking at the overall pattern of the narrative and where the spirit tends to show up with the sign gifts. Um, So there's that. And then secondly, I want us to be really careful not to denigrate the other gifts of the spirit. So a lot of times we start talking about the gifts of the spirit and we only talk about the sign gifts and that just does not do justice to the biblical text in any way, shape or form. Um, And really to only limit the gifts of the spirit to kind of uh, just this list of things because you see like one list in Romans and then another list in, in first Corinthians 12 and then a different list in Ephesians four. And really like, but then we should put it all together with also the fruit of the spirit. And some of these other passages where we see that there's a lot that the spirit is doing and all spiritual blessings that we have. And I, I really think that while those gifts that are listed are, you know, unique because of their um, power for building up the church, I don't think that we ought to um, not include or not consider like special skills and giftings as gifts of the spirit as well. Um, maybe they, we put them in a different category, but we also want to consider all of that as coming from the spirit for the purpose of reclaiming our vocation as kings and queens under God, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. I think particularly the, um, we're talking about with where the spiritual gifts typically tend to manifest themselves. Um, That's actually what Edward says in Religious Affections when um, he is being called into question for some of the spiritual activity that was happening around the Great Awakening. Edward's argument in in Religious Affections is that throughout the history of the church, there's been clusters, is what he would call them, of more pronounced spiritual activity that are accompanied by manifestations of the sign gifts, tongues, prophecy, healing, uh, miraculous utterances, that kind of stuff. And he, he kind of, he charts the history of the church and kind of making that case that there are pronounced seasons in the life of the church where those things show up with greater activity. And he begins that with the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. And then he kind of staggers that throughout church history. And I think there is very much a case to be made that typically where you find the most pronounced spiritual activity or pronounced practice of the gifts or activity of the gifts is typically on the, on the cutting edge of, uh, of pioneering work in dark places. That's typically the case and would be reflective of Paul's instructions to the church, many of which are basically brand new on a new frontier of gospel mission through the world. So, One thing we should also just be quick to say is uh, where both of our churches would agree that prophecy in some form may continue, uh, we would want to be careful to say that nothing that is uttered as prophecy, or maybe if you, um, if you fall into the camp, I think that Adam would lean more toward not calling it prophecy, but calling it, um, like nudges of the spirit or, uh, impressions. 
but functionally we're talking about the same thing. Like functionally we're talking about the idea that the spirit would push us kind of have a sort of special revelation to us that isn't what I want to be clear about is it would not be never would be on par with the scripture and it must conform to scripture that would those things must absolutely be true whether you want to call it prophecy but not the prophetic office or whether you want to call it an impression um, however you kind of wrap your mind around it it cannot be on the same level of scripture. Um, but it is a ministry of the spirit that is very real and is active. And I think is something that we can with great confidence uh, pursue regardless of, you know, our interpretive hangups and whatnot. I think that's about all we can possibly do at this time. Well Does, said. Do, do any of the um, councils, um, like the Nicene council, do any of those speak to the gifts okay. no it's further up the food chain jonathan the early church uh i mean you could you can find this in the writings of the church fathers specifically the desert fathers and the mystics you're going to find a lot on tongues in particular um but and then the reformation is going to have its own angle on uh on this issue um you'd be surprised to find out uh recently this is this is maybe a funny thing to kind of land the plane on the archbishop of canterbury which is a very dignified office of the episcopal church uh, the anglican church in the uk justin welby uh not a charismatic okay at least by anybody's estimation uh was uh, was right uh, was being asked uh a few weeks ago uh, was being asked in an interview um, what's his prayer life like and he casually uh, he casually said well i pray in tongues every day and it like set the theological world on fire everybody was like what the archbishop of canterbury is praying in tongues every day i, I mean he is he's not a pentecostal he's the you know the archbishop bishop of the largest episcopate anglican denomination in the world how crazy is this so i do think that sometimes we, there's a little bit of an exotic mystique around some of these things and I, I think that uh, what you heard Caroline say at the end there is a really crucial way of de-escalating this conversation, which is saying like, hey, at the end of the day, we are going to be pursuing these things in submission to God's word. And anything that gets out of step with that, it's just not, it's not eligible on the field of play. Like it's not going to be entertained. And um, this is particularly when it comes to tongues and prophecy and the gift of healing. It is, uh, the, the New Testament witness is, is very textured. It's very, it's, it's not cut and dry. It's not the deity of Jesus. So um, I think it does require some real pastoral and localized kind of fidelity and improvisation within the scope of scripture because it is a very, it's a very complex conversation. So even such that the archbishop would confess to speaking in tongues and the world would be set ablaze by that confession. How could you imagine? To be, to be fair, uh, I will say the more interaction I have with Anglicans, while we may have differing views on the technicalities of the gifts of the spirit, I do find that they have a very rich, or at least my friends have a very rich experience of walking with the spirit they just have the benefit of it sort of a different layers of theology than, than we do um, in some ways uh, that's quite profound. So I think we could learn a thing or two from them 
Probably and right. Apparently tons. Probably right. Right. Um, Bring us out. Yeah. Um, uh, do we have any housekeeping announcements? Next week we're in person. We're doing yes. ecclesiology and missiology, which is a fun lecture um, on the doctrine of the church and doctrine of mission. Um, and so I hope you guys will be there for that. Um, and thank you guys. I know I said this at the beginning, but I really do mean it. Thank you guys for your diligence and your persistence over the course of this year. And I pray that it will produce a harvest of righteousness in your life. And uh, we'd love to pray that now. Um, God, we love you. Um, we ask God that um, through the sacrifices that people make, whether to study or to read or to write or to think or to listen or to attend or to show up, um, God, we do pray that you would produce a harvest of righteousness in our life and in the lives of those that we uh, care about, those that we lead, those that we work alongside, those that we love. We pray these things in the name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Bless you all. Get out of here. Forge family. Go watch your favorite sitcom or go to bed. Go to bed. What are you We're doing? Take that.